So where should we start? Should we just chat or should we start with a question? So I, I make a lot of artworks that kind of bridge the very everyday with the beyond the everyday, the kind of otherworldly or the cosmic and things like phone lines to glaciers and record players that play the sound of the world turning. And so I love your concept of pancake sci-fi and grandmothers around the table. And yeah, so I thought that might be a nice place to start to hear, hear more about that. And you, you've been to the exhibition, which is nice. Thanks for the exhibition. I uh, told you before that your work had kind of scatterly inspired me before I knew it was from the same mind. Just like when you're, you stumble upon things uh, like the Moonlight Sonata, and then of course the uh, Future Library. And then uh, I got this uh, big envy feeling when I read your book, Things in, in Moonlight, because I think once I wanted to be a visual artist, but I thought I could not because I wasn't so good at drawing. <laughs> but then I saw somebody that yeah, could actually make lots of ideas happen. I love this work with space, space, vastness, time, kind of uh, how you're filtering through the art, these things that are almost unfathomable and, uh, and make them almost uh, tangible in a way. When I was doing my pancake sci-fi, the idea was to reclaim the future from sci-fi. I have done sci-fi myself and very often sci-fi alienates the future because there's so much uh, emphasis on uh, either change in nature or uh, or technology, or governance, or you know, or paradigms, that you forget that there are humans out there, and they're just living their everyday life mostly or hopefully. So the idea was that when a scientist says two thousand one hundred, we have become culturally thinking of it as dystopia or Blade Runner or uh, or just something that is not personal, it just becomes something fictional or something just far out of our realm. So this very simple thought experiment of having my daughter calculating with my grandmother, when my daughter will become as old as my grandmother, and when she will have a grandchild that will have a first-hand story from my grandmother through my daughter, just to see how much time we can touch with our bare hands. So the time of someone we know and love versus the time of someone we will know and love. And then, of course, I'm putting that data against climate science, aligning it with climate science, but keeping still the super intimate in the focus. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I think that I really, really kind of emphasize with that, that so often when we're asked about the future or to imagine a certain you know, number of years in time. Of course, we immediately think of the Blade Runner kind of idea or gadgets or, you know, technology or you, you have all these these ideas that it's going to be something completely different. And of course, the future will be completely different, but ultimately so much of it will, we hope, be the same or be a better version of, of what's now. And then I, I often get asked, like with Future Library, which is a hundred year project, kind of sit, you know, similar scale. Like I love that you say to time that you can touch with your bare hands because a hundred years is sort of just outside our lifespan or close enough to touch, but just that little bit further that it kind of makes you jump into this other, other dimension of time. When I get asked, what do you think? You know, when the people open the first page of the book, what's it going to be like in a hundred years? And and you know, the first thing my mind jumps to is all that crazy gadget stuff. And then I think, hang on, no, I hope that it's just the same. <laughs> that we're standing in a forest, the trees are just the same. This forest has been here for you know hundreds of thousands of years. The people might be pretty similar to us, and you know, we maybe they're going to be having a cup of coffee and listening to authors and. You know, the paper will be the same, da, 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 it'll be the same. And that's quite an alternative vision of the future, I think, that it's the same, you know, or, or not to, obviously, I hope there's going to be radical world changes, but ultimately it is this idea that, you know, it's people that you know, or it's people that are connected to you through to your family and through time. And, you know, whether my son grows up and reads the stories, you know, or the people visiting the forest now, 
we're connected to them so closely. 100 years is like actually just a total blink. This is what I, I could ask my grandparents because my grandmother is 97 this year and my grandfather became 98. I asked them, are 100 years a long time or a short time? I could ask this from experience and they both said short time. I feel like I was in the Westfields yesterday on a, on a sailing boat. I, I feel like I was traveling the glaciers, you know, yesterday, said my grandmother. So it's this interesting contrast of, uh, you know, 100 years being like unimaginably long versus a lived 100 years are just like a blink. Our reputation of action versus inaction in terms of the data we have versus what yeah. we need to do to fix the world. I'm afraid of the regret because we feel like we have way too much time to fix it. But in hindsight, it will be like, oh, why didn't I fix it yesterday? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We don't have, we have a really small window of time and it's just getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, when you kind of measure it in your daily life of how little time there is to act, you know, year on year, it's such a fraction. And then when you start to look at it in the frame of geological time, and, you know, of course, you're in Iceland and surrounded by geology that's maybe reminding you all the time of the processes of change in nature. But, you know, it's just a blink, an absolute blink in, and the changes that are happening across the earth. I think that's what I find quite hard in my work, in a way, try to approach in some way, is those kind of layerings of the time zones of cosmic time, human time, geological time. and But all of those things are blurring together because human time is now like overtaking geological time. But yet, this is what I find really difficult to mesh these different sort of relativities of, of time. <laughs> you work a lot with scientists. And I also have this thought, like myself, okay, I'm an artist, I want to be free, I want to... And this kind of no-no that you're raised with, of carrying a cause, etc. Like, or, you know, you can carry a cause, but but there would be this... You would be uh, shy on claiming that you had a cause, or you had a message, or you had a sincere thing to say. How do you look at the link between science and art and the cause? Yeah, wow. Well, all of my work so far have involved like scientific input, you know, lots of expert approaches and data and working with people in different countries and fields and, and kind of meshing together maybe one of my ideas and then trying to use their input to bring in a very abstract idea to life. And so I, you know, when I started making art, I guess, not that there's like a defined point in it, but I was always wandering off into other disciplines, <laughs> like, you know, right from the get go, even if that, if that was an art school, it would be in all the other areas that I wasn't in at that moment, I would sort of end up switching and moving. And, and then eventually, when I was studying in London at, at the Slade, it's part of UCL and you could just wander down the corridors and then suddenly be in like an ice laboratory or you know the astrophysics department where they're studying the edges of space and time and so I got I think it was quite instant really at that moment that I knew that I, I needed to draw on expertise of others and try to bring together maybe big ideas or urgent ideas but express it in a language that isn't scientific you know, at all, because I'm really not from any kind of scientific background. And so the only language that I know how to how to speak about things is through making art. And it's like a, a kind of a translation or something, but not like a really direct translation. Like I don't take a kind of concept, a scientific concept, and then translate it into a piece of art. But sort of having a concept meshing together lots of ideas and then through that having the freedom through art as well having kind of my own defined time limits my own defined like mediums of how it's going to be expressed and communicated and I can do that in a kind of more urgent way as well whereas I think in often in the sciences people can be really stuck to specific timelines and, you know, have to have specific outcomes and have to answer specific questions. And whereas in art, I feel really lucky in that, you know, I can throw hundreds of questions into one thing 
and I don't feel the need to answer any of them specifically. But if they end up kind of posing more questions or answering some things or answering them in different ways or evoking different things, then I feel quite happy like with the unexpected outcome of things. Whereas I guess in the sciences, there's a lot of the expectation has to be seen through and proved. A lot of things have to be proven. And I feel like I'm in the position that I don't have to prove anything actually at all. But saying that, I also think that I am posing similar questions that many scientists are right now relating to geology and time and landscape and and just able to pose them in a way that maybe, yeah, people can kind of listen to or relate to in a different level and a different way of kind of using their mind or their senses to to kind of grasp. And that's when I find really exciting, like in your writing and in so many works that can actually get to your heart I guess it can get to your heart can get to your mind they can be poetic they can transport you and launch you into different places and and I feel like with the kind of immensity of the task at hand and there's so much of what we're facing right now we've got to approach it from as many different ways in and as many different ways out as we can and yeah so in that regard I think as year as the years pass I do feel much more of a responsibility than maybe I did as an art student 15 years ago to really try to be involved. And rather than trying to escape what's going on, embrace the urgency and embrace the urge. Artists always work with the world around them, whatever that is. And, you know, I heard you saying that over the years, you've moved from writing children's books to being in politics and, and filmmaking in so many different spheres and kind of act on the urgency of what's happening right now, whatever it is. And... You know, right now we can't escape. It's it's to do with the earth and all of us. And well, I, I think the future library, you know, it, it doesn't scream activism. It doesn't say like <laughs> save the trees or, or it's actually about harnessing trees, but planting and harnessing it's about the cycle. But it doesn't scream, you know, global warming or activism. It doesn't say any of these things. It, so it, it's extremely subtle, but it's a it's a so radical kind of uh, assault on our ego because as an artist you want to uh, ripe the fruits you you want to get success instantly and you want the glory of writing the book and of course you also want the dialogue uh, I, I love this kind of beyond your lifetime thinking because i think also artists are sometimes claiming they want to be eternal <laughs> you know just just a chance of being published after your death you're promising that so, but, but also this long-term thinking, because I think that is one of the big failures of our current culture, is this lack of long-term thinking and, and our inability to, uh, I think you also use cathedral thinking, to plan something that you will not finish, but your grandchild or even further than that will, will finish. And, uh, and, and that is something that we have been totally detached from in politics, in design, in, in, in just everything, all aspects of our lives. Yeah, completely agree. When I had the idea for Future Library as well, I mean, it, it wasn't connected to, to climate change or anything specifically. And, and, you know, having the ideas for artworks in the first place, they're never connected directly to a cause. But, you know, it involves ecology and growth and life and cycles of time and hope and trust and, and thinking about future generations. And, and so inevitably, it kind of, it does relate to that. But I think it's it's been kind of working for people um, as a concept because it doesn't shout climate change, but it does so in a like whispery way, <laughs> you know, that it's kind of there thinking about the, the people that are going to be living to read the words and what kind of landscape are they inheriting? What kind of future are they inheriting? And these authors that are writing now, but you know many aren't born yet and trying to have that leap of time, even though it's not such a huge leap, it still feels like taking a leap because we're so accustomed to not having the cathedral thinking you know, in, in culture now. I think the, uh, the, the pancake sci-fi that I was working with was that our ultimate goal is not to make better gadgets. Our, our ultimate goal is to continue to be human within a stable biosphere with other animals and species that are living on the planet with us. And 
And if, if, if we manage to do that in a, in the same way and, and just to have pancakes with your grandchild, uh, th then we have succeeded in, in a way. So it's, it's not more complicated than that it's because it always seems like we're inevitably giving up things to cyborgs and, <laughs> and AI and all sorts of things. But, but the core will always be the same of, of just humans interacting with other humans and uh, being in communities and societies. But because we're on the ocean day, that's the challenge that I've been thinking a lot about because I'm a writer and I'm, uh, I'm using words. And I found out when I was trying to write about the science that I, I met a very worried scientist and he told me about ocean acidification. I had never heard the term and I was so ashamed that I had never heard the term and he, and he was just explaining this to me. And so ocean acidification, the, the forecast of the oceans dropping from 8.1 in pH to 7.7 .7 in the next 100 years. And that is the most radical change in the chemistry of the planet for 50 million years. First, I, I told him that I, I don't feel I, I have authority to write about it because, you know, I'm not a scientist, but he told me he, he's not a writer. You know, he can make the data, he can make the measurements, but he hasn't been training himself for 20 or 30 years to tell stories or, or what language is, is touching the hearts of people. So he gave me kind of this permission. And that's what I also love with your work is I feel you're opening up permission, you know, even though you're an artist, but, but also just for a citizen to interact with scientists and even, you know, deep space science, all these things that you're, you become kind of afraid of because you feel so stupid yeah. when you're going to these specialities. Well, I, I kind of, exactly, exactly. And I think when I started off, you know, venturing into other departments, you know, whether the ice labs and, and so on and so forth, I felt I was so shy and felt, you know, quite intimidated, but probably the same way that if they'd wandered into the art department, I kind of felt. But actually, we soon realised that we have a lot more in common, you know, than, than not. And the scientists in the ice lab had huge chunks of different glaciers that they were analysing and ice cores from, you know, the South Pole. And I'd brought back my, you know, Pepsi bottles full of Icelandic glacier at the time. And I was trying to carve and make some records out of them that played the sound of the ice. So, you know, we're, we're telling the kind of similar stories, but through different means. And I think it's, yeah, and, and it's not the job of scientists or, it's, you know, it's, it's not the job of any one person. It's, it's all of us that have to find ways to relate to, yeah, water. And I loved, I heard you say that, you know, if you started a lecture saying I'm going to talk to you about climate change or, you know, if the book had climate change written all over it, it would be like, oh, no, not another, you know, so depressing, we can't face this. But as soon as you say on time and water, people go, yes, because they can relate to that and it's poetic and, you know, and it's part of us and we're part of nature. And, and it seems to be like that, that is the most, we have to plug into those ways of, thinking and relating to the world rather than it being from the scientific angle and the numbers and the data. But still, I think that's almost dystopian that, that you have to entertain people to want to save the world instead of having a scientific dictatorship that says, I'm sorry, guys, you're killing the planet. Uh, we're removing these cars off the streets and we're putting this transportational system instead. We're in this crazy system where we have to uh, want to do things because yeah. we're a democracy and, and that's and so I have to get attention to uh, causes that are more important than Kim Kardashian or something yeah yeah I mean completely it is it's like how to make it how to make climate change a subject that people like are happy to learn about <laughs> and you know try to make it a desirable Thing. We're talking about a planet here, like, you know, we're talking about, we're not just talking about a city or a town or a civilization, we're talking about the chemistry of the oceans. So, yeah. so that's, yeah. that's what I've been thinking of also is, is that the issue, and, and I, I think you accomplished that through the visual art, through kind of 
that sensory system because you use uh, also like uh, you sometimes touch like uh, a temple built of stone from the dark side of the moon what what's this flirting with uh, the, the mystic what, what, what is that yeah exactly it's a flirting with the mystic you know it's funny because even the word mystic or spiritual let's say you know when i was studying in art school yeah some time ago now i suppose it was like 15 20 years ago that was like a really bad word <laughs> you know it was like the word that you just didn't utter it was you know like mentioning hitler or something you can't mention spiritual or you know because the the moment i did it was like a cacophony of you know being shot down by everybody and then chose not to mention it ever again for a really long time but you know here goes because now i feel a bit older and i don't care as much as i did when i was a student about other people's opinions and um and i do i feel like a fundamental connection to nature is lost and probably that is partly lost because there isn't a spiritual way into nature you know from paganism to druidry and shinto in japan um, living religions and living ways of of viewing nature maybe you know and from kind of um, american indian tribes and ways of um, celebrating nature not excavating it, you know, and and knowing your bounds and understanding resources and understanding, you know, deeply understanding, not, not only, you know, understanding like where the food we eat comes from and clean air and clean water, but like understanding that you're part of that enormous, intricate, very connected system that goes back, you know, millions of years and it's part of this huge continuum. And if that's lost... You know, that's huge. And of course it's lost because here we are, we have, you know, like a handful of years to to make enormous reverses in in what humans are doing to the planet and and you know, entire civilizations to come are kind of in our hands, which is so existentially difficult to think about. But I feel like if if there could be that return to nature you know and and you know you're you're in Iceland uh, of course which is you're surrounded by nature outside of the city and but we are everywhere and actually it's in a way I think going beyond the idea of nature being separate anyway it's like we are nature humans are nature we're all part of this planet we didn't just appear out of nowhere we've kind of come from this really complex evolutionary path over millions of years we share our DNA with trees, you know, we we share our DNA with an immensity of different species, but yet we're losing all of the species because of our action. It does feel like mysticism, you know, we've got to have a place for it again. And instead of like shouting it down or critical theorizing it, theorizing it away, <laughs> it's actually got to come back and not be embarrassed or shamed in a way to... To not because I think when I when I sit for example with Zen and I I kind of follow Zen Buddhism a little bit but I never you know I don't practice it fully I, I haven't dedicated my life to to this, however maybe it's okay to to just be like yes, we're reaching for parts of different ways of philosophies of life and and trying to negotiate a way, to think about the earth that, you know is a much healthier, way I think and. I, I just think, yeah, connecting with nature, uh, whether that's through a kind of mystic way or through a scientific way, through everyday life, has got to lead us to, to love it again, you know, and through loving nature and the landscape might create enormous change for the future. Because, like, you, you've been working with uh, astronomy and uh, and you could say maybe the history of astronomy has been kind of the history of rationalism that is uh, that is from uh, almost unproving heaven uh, you know to to going into infinity and 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 just that thought of infinity that didn't exist maybe a thousand years ago uh, uh, just like a scientific like a scientific term of infinity it's just it's just mind-boggling uh, you just you just can't get over it so yeah so do you think do you feel like you're coming full circle again and you're you're going 
you, you, you're finding some divine again through infinity or well i i think it's amazing isn't it like with with something like astrophysics where you know it's really on like the edge of like such abstract thinking as well and you know it it could be very rational but actually when you look at it it's like how is that rational at all you're like, you know it's concepts like the infinite and reaching back millions of years through you know looking at telescopes that are like analyzing almost the big bang and you know lo- looking back in time where you can like physically be beside the telescope and looking at images that are um beyond the whole earth even existing and we can do this now and we've only been able to do this in like what a lifetime or less even you know and literally year on year the technology gets you know grows and grows and with it the kind of expansiveness of the universe opens up because literally we now know about the you know billions of galaxies and planets and stars and the huge potential for life throughout the universe um and so it's it feels like yeah rational subjects are actually dealing with things that are immensely difficult to conceptualize and especially if it's through formula and if it's through another kind of language then that that's that's a kind of wall for so many people including myself but to get beyond the the wall it just feels like really human questions you know where have we come from where you know how do we fit within this web of other planets and other life and you know especially when we if we think 100 years when we when we look at the universe suddenly the time scales involved are just so unbelievably immense but for me like instead of making you know there's this the kind of idea like the old romantic uh, explorer the you know kind of Caspar David Friedrich in front of nature and this tiny human and huge nature experience i th- i think actually like imagining the scales of the universe that we are understanding now um kind of operating on on time frames that are just so beyond the human makes it even more special to be alive <laughs> you know and even more kind of extraordinary that we've made it to this place on this earth that's you know got this what is it called like the goldilocks kind of temperature and you know way way that we can survive um you know that's so extraordinary and that that feels quite spiritual in a way i think or mystical to just even like consider that in this total speck of mo- of time we're all alive and we've only come here because millions of years of evolution have passed and here we are standing in this moment in time where species are being lost you know every day the oceans are you know are raising in acidification and species are dying and yeah like it it makes it even more poignant to me not less it's not like oh well it's this huge universe um we're just a speck it's like well we're this speck that's created complete havoc <laughs> you know and and it's it's extraordinary i think my one of the best astronomy lessons that i got was uh, from a jehovah's witness that was uh, <laughs> he was proving to me that uh, there was only life on earth because 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 NASA is always pumping up the idea that they might have find, found life somewhere and, and 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 they're always hyping up the expectations that maybe there's life there but but they never kind of gave me kind of the preferences they were always just you know just you find another planet and there'll be life so so this Jehovah's Witness he told me like uh, well you need a hot core you know you, you know you need a hot core and uh, and uh, and and so so the planet is alive, not dead like Mars. So and that's like one in a million, uh, and you need an atmosphere with uh, a certain amount of of the right uh, gases, and that's one in a million, uh, and you need the continental drift, and you need that's one in a million, and you need, need water, and that's another one in a million, and you need to be in the right distance from the sun, and that's another one in a million, and and uh, and if we didn't have the moon, uh, we would just be a moss ball. <laughs> or an algae ball because the moon is kind of you know kind of kind of uh, stirring the soup and 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 you know forcing us to to get stronger and uh, and you know survive and so so it was like one in a million plus uh, times one in a million times one in a million and 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 his outcome was 
won against infinity. <laughs> so so he, he said that there was no chance that uh, <laughs> this had happened elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I didn't necessarily believe him, but but I just thought this was a uh, this this uh, his calculation of. Uh, proving to me that there was no life elsewhere just uh, was was a lesson in how actually special we are and and how how completely rare this uh, this situation we're living in and and that's and then when i was writing my book on time and water or when we were before that when we were protecting the nature of iceland so we were protecting the uh, greatest nesting place of pink-footed geese in the world that was going to be drowned um, that's where I kind of discovered that we were living in a regime. I could not say I think geese are holy, <laughs> or 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 I think geese have should have rights to live. And even though you have proved that you could drown ten percent of the nesting places, uh, I don't think that it should be legal to take ten percent of a species, you know, just like that, to make aluminum. Uh, so we had to come up with arguments. So we were like, having the nesting place of pink-footed geese is excellent for the brand of Iceland. The so pink-footed geese could be like a symbol of the highlands and we could get lots of tourists to come and watch. And then the engineers would say, okay, calculate that for me in revenue. And that was called a rational discussion. Called rational, but how is that rational at all? But the combined rationality of our intellect of our universities of our economic systems is an earth going off the rails so when i was writing the book i was like i can't go into that language that's why i also kind of started flirting with the holiness because if half the earth was holy that is if the nesting place of pink-footed geese was holy and the highlands of ice and some rainforests and rivers and mountains then we would not be faced with this issue. That's it. Half the planet needs to be holy. We need to mark out half the planet as holy sites. That would be our most rational answer to our uh, rational industrialism. Just you can't touch it because it's, it's God. If you yeah. touch it, you will die. It does seem like we need a kind of belief system about the earth that isn't about revenue and numbers and makes earth sacred and makes life sacred again. You know, whether I'm sure there was plenty of civilizations in the past that, that did have that approach, but we need to embrace that approach again by understanding holy life, holy landscape. Maybe we'll have a renewed relationship and a drive to be part of it again. What's your relationship to the feeling of holiness or the spiritual or the mystic? I think I would have been like you. I was shy. And, and so, you know, I, I don't practice beliefs. But I remember when I was uh, traveling the highlands in a place that was going to be drowned under... 200 meters of water in Iceland mm. and and I was so furious because there was so much beauty there was so much wildlife there was so much this was so and the only thing that, that I could think of was uh, blasphemy they were just disgracing something holy and and it was just wrong but I, but I could not have written that in the newspapers and, and when I was sitting there with my friends and we were kind of expressing this and we, we did this screaming yoga where we were screaming at the waterfall and, wow. and, uh, and, and you just felt this tremendous power and this... And then I found a travel book from the 1930s where a 70-year-old romantic poet was traveling the area and he exploded into the most elaborate baroque romantic language of him walking this area where he resonated with the divine eternity of God. And I, I was reading this text from the 30s of a 70-year-old man that just exploded in language of divinity into this area. Uh, and I felt I, I did not have permission to talk like this. But, but 70 years ago, a, a grown man had permission to speak like that about the area. So I was thinking of then also, when we're faced with what we have done to the planet, that the only way to scale up what we're doing is, is to refer to mythology, because history is about empires, kings, 
uh, inventions, trades and, and art. But mythology has been about uh, somebody pulling the moon in a chariot or, uh, or, uh, or, or the great floods or, or when somebody unleashed something uh, like yeah. the Pandora's box or something. Uh, so, so mythology has been about the fundamentals. So we still remember when Moses parted the Red Sea which was uh, considered an accomplishment at that time, parting the Red Sea. But that's nothing compared to raising the world oceans by one meter. Which is kind of biblical. Yes, yeah, so, so that's, I think that will change maybe our perspective because suddenly we have found that we have grown to proportions that are shaking the fundaments and that might throw our minds again into the fundaments. <laughs> That is, uh, because, you know, Ramses II, Napoleon, uh, Genghis Khan, they did not believe they could melt glaciers. But, but now we're having in Scotland, we're having like a convention about, are they going to melt half the glaciers or all the glaciers? Or, in 200 years, will they be considered tragic gods because they could not control their inventions? Like the wizard in the Disney movie, just, did our inventions start controlling us? Do we operate the car or is the car operating us? Is our combined intellect real intellect or are we just like an algae bloom that just grows into our resources and then just collapses again to some primitive yeah. ground state? I heard you describe um, a, a mythology about a holy cow and all the rivers coming from it. <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit more about that myth. That, that was my revelation. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, my mysticism is uh, the, uh, the holy cow spoke to me. <laughs> so uh, in Nordic mythology, the world started with a cow. It was a frozen cow. Uh, and from the udders of this cow came the four rivers that nourished the world. And it, it sounds like a whispering game that went wrong, uh, ending up in a manuscript in Iceland uh, 3,000 years after somebody told the story for the first time. So it's never made any sense. And it's like the murkiest, the darkest myth in Nordic mythology. Uh, Marvel Comics cannot make a film about the, the magic cow. So then I was offered the opportunity to interview the Dalai Lama and I was browsing mythology. And then, of course, they have this world cow in, in India, Kamadenu, you know, which is the mother cow of the world. And I was like, oh, of course, why, why didn't somebody tell me this in school, that, that uh, there's another earth cow in, in, in Hinduism? And the feet of that cow are symbolized as the, the Himalayas. So the name of the Icelandic or the Nordic cow is Humla, or the prosperous Humla. And in Nepal, they have this district called Himla, and you follow the, the Great Himalayan Trail to Mount Kailas, which is the center of the universe, according to Buddhists, and the throne of Shiva, according to uh, Hindus. And from there come the four great rivers of Asia, the, the Ganges, the, the Brahmaputra, the Indus, the Sutlets. Then the source of the Ganga is in uh, Uttarakhand, and that's a glacier called Gomuk, which means the mouth of the cow. And I was like, of course, a glacier as a yeah. source of life yeah. uh, is a frozen cow. It's a perfect system. It, it yeah. keeps the water when you don't need it, when it's actually damaging and it will just flood everything and destroy everything. So it keeps the water when you don't need it. And then it gives you this milky white water that is better than water because it's full of sediment and is like a fertilizer for your crops. So it's, it's, it's not just water, it's, just, it's magic water. So, so of course, a, a glacier as a source of life and, that, and then and the Himalayas as the uh, source of life for one billion people. So, so still yeah. today, and now we're faced with, with global warming. So the great cow is possibly dying. And one billion people, you know, what, what happens if, uh, yes, you can maybe adapt to one meter of sea level rise, but how do you adapt to the source of life being tugged from beneath your feet? You know, it just reminded me of um, a kind of funny story, actually, before. When, when I was in Iceland, I'd forgotten all about this. I was quite young and I got the flu. I was staying in Iceland, working in a hotel, and I got the Icelandic flu that was there at the time. And for some reason, I've totally forgotten why, but I went out to, to stay in this hotel somewhere quite remote. And it was by the glacier um, that suddenly I've forgotten the name of, the, the Jules Verne 
you know, based the story of going into the centre of the earth. So I was staying out there. I was doing some project or had some idea. So for some reason, I went out there and I was staying in, at that glacier and I had the flu um, and I had really crazy fever. And I, remember I was drinking from the glacier with this fever. And I just remember having the most like astonishing kind of ideas and visions and things but I was convinced it was coming from the glacier you know and it was kind of feeding because I was so hot and I was drinking all this and that's where I had the idea to put this microphone in the glacier to listen to it melting you know which I, I did some years ago people could dial this phone number and listen listen to the, the sound of the melting um, but yeah it was just thinking of that idea of water and, and you know everything that it means to us and everything it does to us and it is holy and clean water is a resource that, that everybody on earth needs, but yet it's you know so heavily polluted in so many parts of the world that it's gone, you know, gone to the point um and even like sand, for example, you know, you can you can pick up sand from anywhere on earth now and it has microplastic in it. And I've been talking um with a scientist recently because I've been looking at the this area in the deepest ocean on earth, the, the Mariana Trench where you know people have gone there and big expeditions to try to reach the the bottom in the same way that they I guess want to scale the highest mountains and um, but already they find a plastic bag down there and like a polystyrene cup so the scientist in China is actually sending me his from his personal collection he retrieved a polystyrene cup from the deepest ocean on earth and it's like completely compressed because of the you know the depth of it and it's just so it's disgusting, isn't it? It's like true disgust when you when you kind of have this image of this potentially you know incredibly wild, distant place untouched by humans, and then you realize nowhere is wild and untouched by humans because even in the literally the deepest trench there is on earth, there's plastic bags floating there and I like that term is it um Amitav Ghosh who calls it the great derangement. And it is, it feels like, you know, the the behaviour is so deranged, but framed in this rational way. And <laughs> I can't think of anything that's more deranged than living on a planet where the, the furthest point from humans is still, like, implicated by our actions. Are you are you doing a ocean related anything that you can reveal? Yeah, well, a few. There's a few things. That, one, it's it's not directly ocean, but very much water. I mean, I guess I've I've worked with water a lot from, um, yeah, these ice records made of ice that melted, and but right now, actually, in my freezer downstairs, which is quite funny, I've got this ice core from the South Pole, um, that drilled down two thousand years. Um, of ice because I love that the ice cores are a little bit like tree rings actually and that they kind of go back in time and every layer has the season of that moment compressed into it so it's like this frozen archive of time and even the air bubbles inside the ice are trapped air from you know up to millions of years ago and there's even the volcanic ash from those places that are like you know contained in the ice so I managed to persuade um the this ice lab in Denver to send us an old ice core that they had that you know they don't need to analyze anymore and and so they sent it and so it's in my freezer downstairs just now and I'm planning to melt it eventually and use this um Japanese marbling method called suminagashi and it's an old craft um, which translates to ink floating on water and the craft is to kind of dip an ink which the ink is made of tree soot and then you kind of make rings and then just your breath and the air around kind of moves the image and then you put the paper on and the paper kind of has this trace of the you know time gone by and it's it almost becomes a landscape you know as it as the air moves around and and so the water leaves this kind of trace of thousands of of years of time so that that's something I'm doing, kind of relating to water, and then I'm making this incense at the moment that smells of the first forest on earth and the last forest on earth, which is very much time related. And the scent of the first forest is kind of recreating this atmosphere and 
the looking at the climate and the soil and the the life three hundred eighty million years ago in in the Devonian period, and then trying to create a scent of what what we would have smelt if if we'd been there. Although no vertebrates existed at all at that point. Okay, so um, so no dinosaur is... carcasses. There's no yeah. there's no dinosaur rot in the smell. No. Well, actually, we're trying to burn amber as well because amber is like fossilized tree resin. And inside the amber, you do, you have like sources of, of life from, you know, from millions of, hundreds of millions of years ago. So how old is the oldest forest? 300 million years old? Three, yeah, around 384 million years ago. Um, and well, there's a few, there's a few on the table that could be the oldest forest in different parts. But I think the most kind of defined places in, it's called Cairo, and it's on the, in the Hudson Valley in the States. And they found a kind of fossilized graveyard of of trees from that time, and then there's a place in China as well where it was more like um it was too small to be declared a forest um there was a certain kind of life a new kind of tree that was growing there around the same time that many millions of years ago, but the first defined forest is yeah in this area and in the Hudson valley and it it had just a few kind of tree species. One of them we still have the uh, club moss is still living, and that's the most uh, like related thing that we have now that still here. And then later in time we have things like the ginkgo, that's a living fossil that's, that's still alive from that time. And yeah, the the scent of the last forest that I'm building is is the Amazon, related to the immense deforestation that's going on there but also the you know the big feedback loops that the climate system is also causing from the wildfire to you know human-made deforestation and so when is the last forest about well it's back to this idea of in our lifetime because there was a few different ways of defining last forest and of course it's very speculative anyway and from a scientific point of view you know you, you can't really declare the last forest because we we don't know but if we were to speculate there's a few different ways there could be the extremely distant far future forests as the sun is reaching its peak and its old age and it's about to explode and then the earth goes with it there might be forests then but They'll have reconfigured so much on Earth. The where's tropical now will not be tropical, and the taiga will be like Saharan desert. You know, everything will have changed place and changed time. But in our lifetime, the kind of most threatened forests that can be lost in a human lifetime now is yeah, the whole Amazon is on the table as being can be lost, and and you know that's just so devastating on a whole number of levels, and and one of them is that. It's the most biodiverse place on Earth. It literally has the, the most life there is. So the faster it gets destroyed, the you know the huge number of species devastation it, it leaves is, is immense. So I've been trying to recreate the smell of a really specific part of the Amazon as it is now. And it's a very, very diverse spot. And so I've been working with indigenous communities and the scientists community there in the, the Tipitina Bioreserve and they've been taking walks and describing the different scents and the, the different kind of plants and, and wildlife and from the kind of animal scents that are there from scree- screaming monkeys to, to different kind of stinky insects and the way the soil smells and the chemistry in the soil and, and trying to bring all of this and make it into a tiny incense stick that burns for 15 minutes and is smell isn't that cultural also you can't smell things that you don't know yeah and isn't it interesting that covid right now is wiping out our smell or it's wiping out so many people's smell because it seems to be one of the symptoms that i just heard there's like a scent rehabilitation process going on to help people be able to smell which i find so interesting because anyway i mean scent is the most you know instinctual way to relate to our landscape around us and you know another thing that's probably been greatly lost but as soon as you tap into it you start to realize that you know our senses are are here for a reason and we we can really relate to our landscape um unconsciously through through scent i would i would love uh, the scent of a bird's forest after a rain shower yeah and you know i think that's partly because 
what the rain sets off a kind of chemical reaction. I think, is it a tannin? or I, I can't remember now exactly, but it's a really wonderful thing for humans to smell. Like it really releases a chemistry in us that's really primordial. And rain, soil, like the smell of fresh soil in the rain it's so good for us. Like I think in our biology, it's something that is just like we we should just all be smelling the soil often. And babies apparently try to eat the soil because it's full of such nutrition. But of course, the soil is degrading everywhere on Earth as well right now. I think this is another struggle when it comes to climate change and the the kind of domino effect or like, yeah, how the cause and effect of things that we're... If we only imagine our own sphere and whether that's just our own area outside or our own city, when it comes to water and soil and air, that's the entire planet that's affected. And, you know, the air that we breathe has been going around for millions of years as well. And it's it's sort of that, like how to tap into this, the immensity of the forces at hand that affect all of us and yet you know, they seem so immense and unthinkable, but yet there are daily lives, you know, and there are things that, of course, we relate to them. Water, air, it's how we sustain ourselves and everything. You know, how to kind of get back to basics and and just reimagine what the necessity of clean water and clean air, you know, and clean soil. It's everything, but yet it's a bit priority, it seems. We're having a very interesting show now in Iceland on geology. This perfect volcanic eruption that is taking place just like half an hour from Reykjavik. Yes. It's, uh, that really stimulates all your senses. You, you, you can smell newborn earth. You can, it has this strange metallic smell. It's also strange that it's seducing. The, the volcano is not evil. It's, it's, not like a, it's not like a mean force. It's a, it's a soft, seducing... Yeah. Uh, Luring you closer, people come as close as they, they dare actually, or is possible in terms of the heat. So it asks you yeah. to come as close as possible. And it doesn't feel like hell either. It, it feels yeah. more like just this soothing, seducing, yeah. uh, soft flow of molten rock. It's a beautiful thing. And yeah. so geology, earth being born in front of our eyes, symbolically while all theaters and and music yeah. and everything else was closed so so it's yeah. like so it was like everything was shut down you could not go to the cinema you could not go anywhere the only show that was going on was was the eruption it was, uh, <laughs> it was thousands of people sitting in the night sitting on a hill just watching it wow Oh, that's that's beautiful. That really is. I wanted to ask you about, you told me about the night project that you did in Reykjavik where you asked the city to turn off all the lights and that was just making me think of it, like watching this volcanic eruption and like how how to bring people to watch the sky again. And yeah, I'd just love to hear more about that. Yeah, so that was uh, maybe in the same realm is uh, in the same as uh, what, what do you call your your haikus your uh... yeah the ideas i don't have a better word because there's one um the universe's lights turned off one by one but you actually did that in Reykjavik <laughs> which i love this started around the year 2000 i proposed to the city of Reykjavik that they would turn off all the city lights and an old astronomer would talk about the skies on national radio and I was thinking of that we're raising the first generation on Earth that has not seen a deep, dark sky because uh, we're, we're so heavily lighted in the cities. So they haven't seen the Milky Way. In many places, the sky is kind of polluted also. Additionally to that, our summers also are fully bright. So, so we don't see stars from uh, late April to mid-August. So I was finding out that I had not kind of gazed at the sky. And this is the fundament for religion, for, for navigation, for humans have evolved under a dark sky. And, and what does it mean to grow up in absence of that? Is that like having no taste or, or no smell, like uh, the COVID effect, you know? What does it mean not to be able to smell something? 
or we could not define music. And so we eventually did this uh, in 2006. The uh, city of Reykjavik turned off all the nights and the astronomers spoke about the stars on national radio. And so this was uh, very stressful for me because I knew that that everything that would happen in the city for half an hour would be blamed on me. <laughs> it, it would be my fault. But, but I always wanted to claim it as art instead of a, in, yeah. instead of a happening. <laughs> so I, I called it a poem yeah. for a city. A poem for a city. And, and how did people respond? Like, did people, especially kids, like, did they see the sky for the first time? So the interesting thing was lots of families went outside at 10 o'clock in the evening where normally people would not be out meeting neighbours. But lots of people went out for a drive. <laughs> so the traffic lights were kind of interfering a bit. One woman went out for a, for a bicycle ride and she fell when the lights went off <laughs> and, and, and she blamed me, but that was the only blame that I got. The interesting thing was that when the lights went out, people started whispering. So that was like a beautiful event. The lights went out and at the same time, the, the chattering in the city went down like a few decibels. So you could hear the lights go out. And that was really beautiful. But that's that reverence, isn't it? Like the natural reverence coming back um, to looking at the sky and looking at nature. You hush and you kind of go, oh, you know. The problem was it was like half overcast over Reykjavik. So, <laughs> but the day after was blazing with northern lights and I was like, ah. Oh. But then I said, this should not be like a happening. This should be, you know, when we have a, a, moon, a lunar eclipse, when we are having a, a meteorite shower. Yes, it should be in everybody's calendars, yeah. A normal procedure, the lights will go off because of this. That, I mean, that would be incredible. It's, it's, it's a human right to have access to this, not, not having a car to drive out into the countryside. Yeah. And I, I really do believe that, you know, by looking into space and looking into sky and learning about other planets and other stars and the moon and our relationship to all of that, it brings you back to loving the earth even more because, you know, you start to remember that it is a planet. Um, and I mean, for me, that, that first realisation only came in Iceland, actually, oddly, even though, you know, grew up in Scotland and in the wild up here. But it was being in Iceland that, you know, literally watching things explode in front of your eyes and, and feeling the warmth of the earth and the energy and the light that you remember we're on a planet and, you know, by looking at the sky and by turning the lights off and looking at the stars, you remember the preciousness of the earth and then you start to take care of it again, you know. So I, th I think it should, it should be a human right. And how wonderful if like every lunar eclipse, every solar eclipse, every like comet that was passing overhead, even if we just for five, one minute, even like a minute silence, you know, it should be held that we could all go out and appreciate that it would be incredible. <laughs> it should just be in the, in the in the calendar somewhere. Yeah, we should have like yeah, iCal invites <laughs> that could go out to everybody that would alert you when you know there's something incredible happening tonight. Go and turn the lights off. Go and look at it. And actually, on that note, I wanted to ask you about the the eulogy that you wrote to the glacier. The okay glacier in Iceland. I mean, I thought that was astonishing, very beautiful, very poetic. Like, what was it like to actually have to write it? Like, how, what was the process like? That was, um, it was like a strange request. I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, how, how did the request come about? Yeah, so these are two uh, anthropologists from uh, Texas, uh, Simone Howe and Dominic Boyer. They're from Texas, so doing research on climate change and the Anthropocene. And they noticed that we had lost our first glacier to climate change. And, and they were wondering, when did climate change happen? It's like a gradual, long event. Where were the milestones? And they thought this glacier would deserve like a monument, just like a war monument or a, or a eulogy. So uh, they asked me, and I was thinking, oh, this is, of course, a very strange... I was also shy. I was like, uh, you know, w will people think this is silly or something? Then I was thinking, Okay, I'm making this in copper. And I was thinking of cemeteries that I visited where I can read something that somebody wrote 500 years ago on, on a tombstone. And I was thinking, okay, so I'm talking to somebody maybe in 500 years. 
but I'm also talking to us. Uh, so how do you how do you that this this might be the only text of mine that will survive me, uh, because it's in copper as long as nobody uh, steals it. And probably it'll survive so many more of the glaciers in the world. It, it will survive the glaciers and it will survive the stone that it's placed on because copper, the, the stones are brittle and they will eventually be weathered away by wind, and but the copper will be there. So what kind of language do you use? What kind of verse? And I was reading the Adda poetry, language that has survived a thousand years. And it's always very direct and simple. It's not like uh, I'm looking at the ray of the glacier, blah, blah, you know, nothing yeah. like, a, no, no nonsense text. The Adda is like, uh, once I was young, I, I was lost, but I was rich when I found another man. <laughs> so it's like super basic. Yeah. So that's just going to write it super basic. I love that kind of language. And it, it's like haiku language as well. And it's so difficult, actually, to just use a few words to express something very big. <laughs> In the end, it was just the, the, the fact this is the first glacier that we lose to climate change. In the next 200 years, we expect all our glaciers to go the same way. And this monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. But only you know if we did it. It's so powerful. And we need an emotional connection. It's like until we can have something that goes directly to our heart that we care about and that we love, we won't take action fast enough. And I think it's it's things like your eulogy that shoots straight to the heart. And, you know, well, there could be a 100,000 scientific texts that even if you spent your life reading it, actually, you just need to read that one text. That's all you need, you know, to understand. <laughs> so I think it, I did this project um it's kind of funny though, but um, I wrote a letter every time a star died. It just reminded me when you were talking. It was also very short, you know, it said, just dear whoever I was writing to at the time, I'm sorry to inform you of the death of the star SN 2008B, you know, whatever the star is called. And then I posted it and I did that for five years. <laughs> every time a star died, I posted a letter to somebody. But I think we should, we should be holding funerals for, you know, everything that's disappearing um, in front of our eyes at the moment because through ceremony and ritual, we, yeah, again, it's kind of back to these basic ceremonies and rituals as a way to connect to things that are important and that have been lost a lot. Because the, the funny thing is that uh, I felt kind of normal when we placed it there. You know, it, it was a moving thing, but I got very strong reaction from abroad. In some way, it's, it's so difficult when you're on a place in the absence of something you're still in a place, so it's not like you're in a place that is gone, it's just you're in another place. So recently they, they placed the same text on a glacier in Mexico. And there I was like, I was a bit startled and I felt, okay, this is serious. It felt more serious for me when yeah. I was reading it from Mexico. Wow, they're having like water scarcity and the consequences there are even more drastic than they are here in Iceland, and then the Himalayas, even even much more. I was writing about that scientists maybe don't understand their findings until other people understand them, because a scientist was telling me data that was terrifying, and I could just see that he didn't really understand his data, because it, was, it didn't have a heart connection, it was just there in his brain, and he thought it was intellectually stimulating to find this data about the oceans dying. Yeah, but then when it when it relates to your next and kin or your great-grandchild not surviving or, you know, your distant family becoming climate refugees or, you know, when you actually relate it to human issues. I understood the glacial eulogy better when I read it in Spanish mm. because one place losing it is, is a lot, but, okay, well, this is like... This is a yeah. serious issue, you know. It's when when I put the microphone inside the Vantnayoko glacier, it was exactly that sort of effect. It was like being distant from it, listening to the glacier melt through a telephone line, brought it closer. Oddly, had more impact because you're not there with it. You're like listening from afar and realizing that even over immense time and distances we're still connected to that thing in fact even more connected sometimes when you have that distance between you 
And that was even, I did that in 2008, you know, and that's before, I mean, of course there was an awful lot of talk going on about climate change, but it was, it wasn't as imminent as it was now. Um, now the, the first glacier in Iceland is, is completely gone, which is so tragic. Um, and yeah, in left, in, did you say in less than a life time, we could be losing half the Earth's glaciers? Yeah, easily. Yeah. 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 I mean it is it's the, the great derangement to to even be able to say that in a sentence, you know, in in a lifetime half of our glaciers could be gone is deeply shocking. I think the generation entering universities now, science has kind of lined up uh, some kind of apocalypse in 2070, you know, before they reach their pension years. I was always raised with the year 2000 as a very distant future. Now we're like 20 years past the future. And culturally, a future date hasn't been updated. We went past the future. Now I think this generation that just sees 2100 as a date when they will possibly still be alive, they will react much more radically having the corona paradigm where the government just killed all sorts of industries because they were harmful or social activities. And I think this generation that also has the climate strikes also has this data. I think we will see huge transformation in paradigm in the next five, ten years. 2010 will be a barbarian time. Yeah, that would be the most hopeful vision, the huge paradigm shifts and looking back to the great derangement of our generation, I guess, and the one just before us. I mean, it's really down to, what, maybe three generations? where most of the devastation has been happening and like less than one to make the changes. I found it just astonishing with the kind of the speed at which people have responded to Corona and if that speed could be applied to the bigger picture of making change on planet Earth. It's, you know, it, it could be immense, the changes that might happen from now on. I think they might even look easier to them than they look to us because you will be able to visit grandmothers and you will be able to go to parties and to the bar and to concerts. But there are just a few things that you just have to skip. You know, don't eat beef from the rainforest. Don't throw away things that are useful. The scientists tell me it's not necessarily impossible to reach these goals, but that requires the rest of our working lives and all the working lives of a whole generation is about this issue. Yeah, incredible. That Maybe that's the perfect place for us to stop anyway, to the kind of future generations and making immense change. What do you think? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs>